Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for, such, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word for God's people. Father, uh, I need you. Uh, We need you in this room. Uh, God, we are desperate for your word and your spirit. Uh, God, I pray that today uh, you would do something unique in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that you'd give us sharp minds um, as we think through a a difficult text. You'd give us soft hearts, um, that we wouldn't blow past this, especially for those who maybe have read these stories before, but that this would be uh, new and real and that your spirit would do something unique in us. Um, God, I pray that we would love you more and worship you more, that you would remove any idols in our heart that need to be removed, and that we would worship you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's the, the hanging question for these two stories. Uh, if you do have a Bible, you can turn right away to Matthew 19 that Amanda just read. Uh, and if you're new, uh, we're in this section in Matthew, this part of the book that we're calling the right side up kingdom. All right, and what we're saying is, is that there's this way of the world that is kind of this upside down way, that, that God has designed the world and his kingdom to work in a certain way, and that is what Jesus is talking about, the way that life should work. Uh, And in chapters 18 and 19, we're talking about the the people 
of the kingdom. So if you remember back, chapter 18 was about communal life, relationships. How do we do this community thing that Jared was just talking about together? Well, chapter 19 is similar, but the little shift is that now we're looking at types of people in the kingdom. Okay, so what hangs as a a cloud or maybe like an umbrella over these stories today is the question, who gets in? Who gets into the kingdom? How is someone saved? How do you get life from God? What type of person must you be? You know, our, uh, our staff team, we took a little uh, staff retreat this last week. And just to be honest and transparent, we did have a little bit of time that was like intentional content. And we had a lot of time that was like athletic competition. All right, that was kind of the majority of it. Uh, we played pickleball, we had frisbees, we had volleyballs. We even played this weird random game that Daniel made up. And so uh, it, was, it was great. But there was a couple times throughout the two days where we had to figure out how are we going to divide teams? Right, which can be maybe a trigger for some of you if you like think back to gym class or recess as a young child, right? Because what you do usually is you have two captains, and that captain is thinking, who do I want on my team? What kind of people do I want? And, and by the nature of it, what you're doing is you're evaluating people. You're looking at them and you're saying, okay, what's the past experience? What have you done that I've seen? What, what, what kind of athletic or whatever the competition is? What, what do you look like you have? And really they're asking, what value do you have for my team? Now let's imagine Jesus, this might be weird, but let's imagine Jesus is a captain, you know, in middle school gym class, and he's picking his team. He's choosing, who are my people going to be? And the question is, how does he evaluate? Like, what is he exactly looking for in people? Who, who has the right value for him? In chapter 19, there's actually three stories of three different groups of people, right? If you remember last week, Jared preached on uh, a passage where Jesus encountered some religious people. And if you remember, he rebuked them, okay? The last story we're gonna look at today is this rich young man who seems by the world standards to have a lot of value And Jesus eventually turns him away. And tucked in between are these like three verses, this tiny little story about these children that are coming to Jesus and Jesus embraces them. This is not a mistake or a coincidence by Matthew. He's putting these stories together because this should be a little bit shocking for us. And again, maybe you've heard these stories enough that it's not that surprising, but as we get into it, this is not who you would think Jesus should pick. And I think today is going to be a little bit enlightening, hopefully for some of us, as well as a little bit challenging. Because what Jesus is going to kind of force us to wrestle with today is are we, or maybe for you, to ask yourself, am I the type of person that belongs in the kingdom? Because Jesus says this line, he says, to such as these belong the kingdom. He's going to tell us, how do we get in? Who is the type of person that can inherit the kingdom of God? And we need to wrestle with, am I that type of person? All right, because the the chapter has two bookend stories with the, the religious people and the rich people. And by the world standards, both of them, we would naturally think Jesus would want in. But Jesus has a little different 
evaluation process. So again, we're going to jump right in. We're just going to walk through these two stories. Um, We're just going to ask ourselves, who gets in? Who gets to inherit the kingdom of God? So let's start. Let's look at verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. Okay, so let's stop there. Uh, If you've been tracking with us through Matthew, maybe you remember in chapter 18, so it was in August when we looked at this, we heard this story where Jesus taught us the value of children, right? And he he told us that uh, we have to be childlike if we want to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, apparently the disciples didn't get the message too clearly because we're only a chapter later and we're gonna see almost the identical type of story and message, You see, here now, people are bringing children to Jesus, and the purpose, this is kind of a normal Jewish tradition, they would bring children uh, to rabbis that they may bless them and pray over them. So people are bringing their children to Jesus. Well, the disciples rebuke them, right? So they, they say, hey, this is not okay. They believe that these children are too unimportant for Jesus's time. It would kind of be like, uh, let's imagine that here at Providence, we said, hey, in January, we're gonna pay some money and we're gonna bring in like a, a nationally known preacher. Okay, like big time. So pick whoever you listen to. So big time preacher, we're bringing him in for a Sunday. And so we're getting excited about it and he's gonna come in and preach. And so you got, you know, whoever, you're Tim Keller, John Pipe, whatever you got, whatever's in you're Blaine, that's fine. So, so he's coming in, and let's say he walks in, and he starts walking down the hall, uh, and Sydney, who's our kids director, let's say she catches him quick and says, hey, thank you for being here. Um, we're actually really short on nursery volunteers. Could you come back for the morning and just hold babies and pray over them? And let's imagine the disciples would be the people. This might be many of us, okay? So let's be honest how we're thinking. They would go up to Sydney and say, okay, you know, Sydney, that's, you know, nice and all. Okay, but let's be serious. Like, he could have way more influence not being in the back of the room holding babies, but up here on stage, right? Like, let's get him on stage. That's how he's going to have more influence. Like, other people can go do the work of holding babies. That's essentially what the disciples are thinking here. The children are too unimportant to take Jesus' time. He needs to spend time You know, more like with the religious people. Is that not the cultural water of the upside-down kingdom that we swim in? Right, like this story is specifically speaking of children, but it's really highlighting those in society that are overlooked, the unimpressive to the worldly eye, those who are not deemed important or valuable enough. In fact, my guess is maybe most of you in here have actually felt that before. Maybe in your family, maybe a church, maybe at work, maybe in a a friend group, that you weren't the one who everyone kind of gushed over, that everyone thought, I just want to be in your presence, that you felt, I'm not really that important. You know, I, I have a, a memory, you know, it's kind of one of those weird things, you know how you go through life and there's just certain things that kind of seem mundane or not as big of a deal and they just stick in your brain, you know what I'm talking about, and you just get these memories. Um, 
Well, I, I had a time when I was, I was working at another church here in Omaha, and I had just become a Christian. I, this was my first ministry job. I was in the first year of it. Uh, and the pastors there, my bosses, they, they said, hey, we want to start a college ministry, and we want you to help start it. Uh, and I remember there was a day where there was a guy who was in the church uh, who I knew a little bit, other people knew, uh, and he came into the church offices and he was sitting talking to one of the pastors. And uh, our building back then was really small, but he didn't know that my desk was like right outside the office so I could literally hear everything, uh, but he didn't know that. Uh, and so he was sitting there and he was talking to him. And I remember him saying, he said, hey, um, I know you've asked Andrew to help start this thing. And I just, honestly, I don't think he has what it takes. Uh, I don't think he has the right personality for what we want in a college ministry. He doesn't quite have enough like charismatic leadership. Like I really think for our church to build a good college ministry, you really should have somebody else do it. And if you ever heard things like that, you know, it just kind of like, they just stick. And then you kind of start to believe them. You know, I remember the couple weeks after that as we were getting going and something hard would happen. And I remember thinking, man, that guy was right. Like, I'm really not impressive enough as a leader. You know, there really is. I'm sure God would rather use somebody else and not me. You ever felt that? You ever just felt like, man, I I don't really know if people really want me here. You know, I don't really know uh, if I am doing this as well as maybe other people would. You know, look at these people that everyone wants to be around. I don't think people really want me around. It's that idea that these disciples are believing about children. They're saying there's some people in life that just aren't worth the time and focus for Jesus, the unimpressive and the unimportant. They're thinking if Jesus was a captain picking a team, these children would be the last pick. But look how Jesus responds in verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now again, you, you maybe if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story before, but don't let this kind of just glaze over. This story is intentionally meant to shock the readers. Because think about this, Jesus, we've already talked about this a ton, Jesus is on this grand mission to bring the kingdom of God, like the kingdom of God Almighty, to earth so that he can rule and reign over all things. This is the biggest thing in human history. And he says it belongs to the unimportant, to the unimpressive. Again, just to carry the, the analogy, it would be like if you were picking a volleyball team and you said, my number one pick that I want is the person who has no hand eye coordination has never touched a volleyball. Like, that's who I want. Or if you're picking like a study group for school and you request to your teacher, you say, can I please have the person who has an F and literally has no idea what's going on? Like, that's the one I want on my team. That's what Jesus is saying. In this society, children are unimpressive. They're not valued. They're not deemed important. And Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. I mean, honestly, how in the world can that be true? You know, sometimes I have this image of Jesus that, that maybe he's just kind of being contrarian. You know what I'm talking about? It's like whatever Jewish people usually do, he just picks the opposite. You know, it's like he's just going to be countercultural, right? And like sometimes we can view it that way. Like, well, of course, you know, he's just picking something different. But, but actually ask, 
How is it true that this ultimate mission of God's kingdom belongs to the unimpressive, those who don't really have anything to offer? Well, the next story is actually going to give the answer to that. Because if you notice, the story just ends here. He doesn't give any explanation. He just says, to such belongs the kingdom. He prays, and then they leave. But Matthew records this next story as Jesus interacting with somebody else who gives us the answer for who exactly is it that belongs in the kingdom of heaven. So let's start reading the next story, and he's going to help us to see this. Let's read uh, 16 through 20, just to get a gauge of what's happening. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Okay, so stop there for a second. So the story goes, he leaves this space with the children and he runs into this man. Now at this point, we don't know anything else about this man. All Matthew tells us is that there's a man who's approaching Jesus. And, Jesus, uh, and he asks Jesus, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And that's kind of the common conception for most people, right? This is just how we function and work. Because he's essentially asking, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that there's something here that I have to do in order that I may now achieve eternal life. So I don't have it now. I want life from God. This is a Jewish idea here. I, I need life from God. So what do I need to do? What do I need to sacrifice? What good deed, what thing do I need to do so that God and I can be right again? Uh, it's, it's similar to like the impulse uh, that I have whenever I do something that like hurts my wife. Okay, so I say something that's hurtful or I forget to do something I said I was gonna do. And the first thing that goes through my mind is, okay, something's not right now. I did something wrong. What good thing can I do for her to make up for that wrong? Right, you ever think like that? Like you do something and your impulse is, well, let me do something else that will kind of make up for it so that our relationship can be right again. Well, that's what this man is asking. What good deed? What thing can I do so that God and I can be right and I can receive eternal life? So Jesus tells him, he says, well, go and keep the commandments. And if you notice, this is really mostly the back half uh, of the 10 commandments. It's all like the relational ones. You see that? So he's basically saying, be a person of love. Like start there. Just, just be a person of love to other people. And I think part of that is saying, look, if God is the ultimate one who is loving and generous and giving of himself to others, you go and do that. Be like God. You be, be loving to other people. To which the young man, uh, now in verse 20, we get that next word that he's young. Okay, so now we got this young man, says that he's followed those. Now what's funny is Jesus actually doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say like, you youthful, you know, punk, you haven't followed these things. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke him at all. Look at what Jesus says. He, he, he simply takes one more step. Uh, look at verse 20, uh, 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, that is um, like complete, whole, if you want fullness of life, you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, 
Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So 22 seems to point to Jesus striking a nerve here. Because up until this point, he and this man are talking. The guy seems to be tracking with him. There's no like animosity. He's not trying to catch Jesus in something or trap him. It seems like he legitimately wants to know, how do I get into the kingdom? Just tell me and I will do it. But Jesus goes one layer deeper. He says, great, you've kept some commandments. Go then, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. Jesus says, that is what it's gonna take if you want to be in the kingdom of God. Now, verse 22, it tells us about this man, uh, one more thing, he's not just a young man. It said he had great possessions. In other words, the young man was very wealthy. And the call to give that wealth away so that he could be all in with Jesus was too much. It says he walked away sorrowful. Now, a lot of people speculate, well, was he sad and he came back? You know, anything like that? I don't know. We never hear from this man again. So I think what Matthew's trying to show us here is he couldn't do it. We don't don't hear that he ever comes back. It doesn't seem like he's sad that he's got to go do it and then comes back. He just, he's sad and he walks away. Now, I want to dive into why Jesus is saying this, but let me say this first. Uh, As we're reading this, this does not seem like a recruiting tactic that Christians have today. Like, think about this story. Uh, These two stories together. Jesus says, I want to spend time with the children, those who nobody thinks is important. And then this young uh, leader, Luke tells us that he's a leader. So he's got some leadership position. He's got people that report to him. He's young. He's wealthy. He comes up, and if we can just be honest, this is the person who most churches and most Christians would say, Jesus, that's the guy you spend time with, right? Like he's young, he's a leader, he's ambitious, he wants to follow the kingdom, he's got money. Like, like you're thinking, hey, this is a gold mine, right? Like this is a young, wealthy leader. Let's get him in the church. Let's get him in the pipeline. Like Jesus, you can make him into the next Peter, James, or John. Like he can fund the ministry. Like Jesus is homeless. He's walking, he needs money. This seems like the perfect guy. Church, may we never, never be so enamored by external charisma or qualities that we ignore the cancer in someone's heart. This is a needed word. We are prone to looking at the external. Oh, there's some character issues. I'm sure that'll get resolved. You know, we're looking at the potential. Well, he's got some stuff in his heart. I'm sure that will get figured out, but not Jesus. He wasn't enamored with the external impressiveness of this man. He lovingly pointed out the one thing in his life that will prevent him from truly entering the kingdom. He tells him, give up your wealth, give it away, become needy and dependent, then you can follow me. He had to let go of his reliance on money so that he could be reliant on Jesus. Which is why Jesus is gonna say, it is really hard for those with money to get into the kingdom of heaven. Look what he says next in 23 and 24. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In our world, and oftentimes in our Christian culture, uh, wealth is seen as a great blessing, right? And to some extent, it is. It is, like, our finances come from the Lord. So it is a blessing from God. But we do need to speak bluntly and clearly. Uh, This is important for us because we are a wealthy group of people. Uh, Now, I know everyone in the room can point to how they don't have as much as they could or should or want. We can always point to somebody else in the room that has more. I get that. But just for a frame of reference, if you make $4,000 in a year, you are in the top half of the wealthiest people. That's $300 or so a month. Okay, if you make $4,000, you're in the top 50%. If you make, depending on the study, like sixty-five or 75000 a year, you are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. There are some people I know in the room who are in the top 5%. You think about the whole world, almost if not all of us are in the top half. Many of us are in the top 10%. We are generally a wealthy room. So we need to listen to this. Jesus says, wealth is not a catalyst for you to enter into life with God. It is an obstacle. Now, I know some of you might be arguing in your mind, okay, well, you know, that might not be exactly what Jesus is saying. We can argue that, but literally, I don't know how else to take Jesus' words when he says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. It's an obstacle, It will be harder for you to enter the kingdom of God if you have lots of money. And this isn't just Jesus. This is historically true of the church. Like if you know much about church history, if if you look at the last 2,000 years, do you know where the gospel tends to explode? Amongst the poor, amongst the outcast, amongst the persecuted, amongst those who have very little in terms of material wealth. And do you know what tends to happen to people groups or nations when the gospel becomes mainstream and the wealthy and powerful get it? It tends to die out and move to another poor population. That's not a slanted opinion. That's church history. That's literally 2,000 years of the gospel exploding amongst the poor. And especially for us as a young church, we need to hear this. We have got to be careful when our hearts tend to desire more money because Jesus says the more money you receive, the more difficult it will be for you to follow him. This rich man, he couldn't do it. He had lots of wealth and he couldn't do it. Now again, a couple objections maybe. I know some of you might say, okay, well, we see Jesus call lots of people in the gospels. He rarely ever tells people to sell all their money, right? So, so I, I know you could argue, okay, this is an overstatement. This is kind of a one-time thing. He doesn't really tell anybody else to sell their possessions, okay? I, I get that. However, one commentator I read this week, I think speaks, just nails it to that argument. And he says this, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Think about that. That's confusing, but let me just say it again. That Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell their possessions really only gives comfort to the people that he would issue that command. So if you're sitting here thinking, Jesus didn't tell everybody, okay, I don't gotta give him my money, I don't gotta do that. 
You might be the person that Jesus is speaking to. Now, does that mean that Jesus hates wealthy people and hates money? No, absolutely not. So we don't need to go there either. That's not what I'm trying to say. In fact, his issue is not that money itself is bad or even how you use money is necessarily bad. His issue in this text is that money makes you less dependent on God. And the kingdom is only for those who are dependent on God. And that, I think, is the bullseye to our question today. The kingdom does not belong to the impressive and the important, but the needy and the dependent. See, we often think that the kingdom of heaven is about our good deeds that we kind of do or prove to God that we should be in. But Jesus is teaching us it is not a good deed that you must do, but the good one that you must depend on if you wish to have life. He's teaching it's not your deeds, it's your dependence that will open the door of the kingdom for you. The kingdom belongs to those like children, not in their age or some sort of moral innocence, but in their dependence on another. Uh, if, if you're a member here, you know, like, there's a ton of babies being born in our church right now. And uh, uh, especially for first-time parents, uh, I've talked to some of them over the last few weeks, and I remember this even in my own life. Once you have your first baby, it's a, it's a weird realization as you hold them and you think, this human being is utterly dependent on me, right? Think about a baby. Like, I remember feeling this when I was holding my first time. I was like, if I don't care for him, Literally, he cannot live. Like, he cannot function without another for him. And in talking to this man, Jesus does not stop until he takes his scalpel and he surgically addresses the cancer in this man's heart. His dependence was on his wealth. And for us, I think if Jesus were to examine our hearts, what would he find? Maybe ask yourself something like this. What do you truly depend on for God to be pleased with you? Think about how you view God's posture towards you. If he's happy with you, if you're good with God, what are you depending on to make that happen? Is it your obedience and the good that you've done to make him happy? Or are you depending on the grace and work of Jesus Christ? Or think about this. What do you truly depend on and again, this is important for a room like ours. What do you actually depend on to be provided for tomorrow? Is it your job and your bank account? Or is it the fact that you have been adopted as a child of an infinitely rich father who loves to provide? Think about what do you depend on to help you get through a challenging season of life? Is it your willpower, your strength, your ability to solve a problem? Or do you depend on the God of comfort who 2 Corinthians says suffered so that he may enter into suffering with you? Uh, you know, one area for my family where I think this is most tested is in our physical health. Uh, my wife and I literally sat in our living room yesterday morning and we, we just commented that God seems to ruthlessly over the last few years see and ask if we will depend on him. And maybe you've gone through similar things where, you know, I can think back to 
seeing my son a couple years ago in hospital room after hospital room, uh, myself being in hospital bed after hospital bed, seeing my wife lay on a hospital bed. And I have to ask myself, what am I truly depending on in these moments? Is it myself? Is it my body? Is it my brain? Is it figuring things out? Like a caring physician, Jesus ruthlessly attacks the tumors in our hearts. A surgeon would be no good surgeon to say, I'm sure you'll be healthy and we'll figure out that tumor some other day. A surgeon who loves and is good ruthlessly and aggressively attacks that which is killing us. And so too, Jesus is so good to ruthlessly attack the idols in our heart to, to remove the things that are killing us. You know, we, we get this backwards. In the upside down kingdom of the world, we think if I'm suffering, it has to mean God is mad at me, God's upset at me, I've done something wrong. And the Bible's answer is that oftentimes it is God removing things that are painful in the moment so that you may have life forever. And this is a challenging thing. So challenging, in fact, the disciples finally ask in verse 25, look at this, they say, the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. If it's this hard, if it's I have to fully depend on God alone, they say, who can do it? Who can be saved? And Jesus says, if you are depending on yourself, even for your own saving, it's impossible. Because your eternal outcome depends on the strength of that which you are depending on. So if you're depending on yourself, your wealth, your future, uh, the things of this world, you will perish as those things fade away. But if you are depending on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the power of God, he says you will receive life evermore. Left to ourselves, he says, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible if your faith is in him. And I do think today, uh, for some of us in the room, I've prayed this week that the Spirit of God might make that invitation for Je from Jesus clear to your heart. Notice he didn't turn the wealthy man away right away. He told him, here's how you enter in. And I think similarly today, he might be offering this to you saying that thing that you're so dependent on, that thing that honestly is crushing you, that thing that causes anxiety and worry, that thing that is not dependable, sell it, give it, let it go, and follow me. And today just might be the day that you could actually become dependent on Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins and gift you eternal life. The man in the story couldn't do it. But would you do that today? Would you accept that offer from Jesus? And he says, for, for any who do, for any who do follow him, who give that up and follow them, uh, I love the disciples in these stories because uh, they're so helpful for us. They ask, well, what about us? Right? Like if you have done that, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've taken his offer to let him remove the idols of our heart, to change us and transform us and to follow him, if that's you, what about us? And that's exactly where the disciples go. And, and Jesus, man, 
I just love Jesus. He, he responds in such a beautiful way. Like he doesn't just call you to give. I mean, he does. This is a call to give. But he gives you this motivation to give to end. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters or father, mother or children or lands, anything you've ever left, anything that's been deep in your heart that you've removed for his name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is so good. He says, look, if you give up your money here, whoever looks last in this life, you will receive life and you will receive hundredfold what you actually gave up. Can I put that in common language? Jesus is saying, friends, this is simply a better investment. He says, you give up a little now, you receive a hundredfold in the life to come. Uh, there, there's a, a famous, kind of famous story of Magic Johnson. If you guys have heard of his name, he's one of the best basketball players of all time. And in 1979, he was coming into the NBA. He was this rising star, and he was getting his first shoe deal. Now, at the time, again, this is 79. At the time, Converse was the shoe, okay? So that was, that was the thing. It was Converse. They had all the big names. And so Converse offered him a deal of $100,000. Now, again, this is 1979. Uh, he's a young kid. He said, we'll give you a $100,000 check. That is yours. Well, Johnson, before he signed the deal heard from another guy from this tiny little company at the time. It was named Nike, okay? And Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, he wanted to sign Johnson to a Shudos, this little startup company. The problem was Nike didn't have $100,000 at the time. I know it blows our mind. They didn't have it, okay? So he couldn't really compete. So what he offered him was reportedly $100,000 in stock options for the future and royalties on the shoes that would sell. So think about it. The deal is only good then if Nike makes it, right? If they fall flat, he gets no money. So it's banking on if Nike makes it. If it wasn't, he would look pretty foolish. So Johnson turned down Nike's offer. He signed with Converse. He chose the money that seemed smart in the moment, the money he could have now. And this was a horrible investment. Uh, it's reported that he would have made over $5 billion if he would have signed that deal. He had almost nothing on the front end, and in the long term, he would have had $5 billion. The problem was Johnson was too short-sighted. Friends, this is our problem when it comes to money. We believe it's just too costly to give up hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars in this life. And Jesus is saying, you give that up, not only do you get life, you will receive hundredfold in the life to come. Yes, it may look foolish on earth. You may look poor on earth. People may say, this is ridiculous on earth. I mean, think about it. If Johnson would have signed with Nike, everybody at the time would have said, you're crazy. This is a foolish decision and not one person would say that today. So too, if you live radically generous, you give up of your wealth today, People will say you're foolish. People will say this is not smart. And not one person in a hundred years will say that. In a thousand years, in a trillion years, in life evermore, not one person will say that. Jesus is calling us 
not just to give. He's saying make the smart investment. Depend on God. Now, we're going to transition into a time of communion. But one thing I want to highlight here from this text, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but what we're doing when we come forward to take communion each Sunday uh, is essentially what we're talking about here. Okay, think about this. When you're sitting in your seat right now, you probably look to some extent like you've got it together. You know, you, you've maybe, you know, you've thought you're here and things are going well in life. Uh, you might seem like an amazing young leader. Uh, you might have all of your wealth at your fingertips on your phone. You could have all of that. And then you walk forward. And you walk forward with absolutely nothing in your hand. You have nothing else that will save you. In fact, you walking forward is your acknowledgement that I have nothing to save myself, to live for in myself, and therefore I come empty-handed. And then you come to the server and you receive two cups. You get a little bread and a little juice and you hear those words, Christ's body and Christ's blood for you. And you take those in your hands. And now what once was empty is now full, symbolizing what Christ has done for you. And as you come back to your seat, your dependence when you got up has now been met. The neediness of your soul, that you have nothing in your hands, has now been satisfied. That thing in your soul that says, I need something, has now been met in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that this passage teaches, honestly, that there will be unending riches in the new heaven and new earth. I do actually believe that. But what's even more is that we are fully satisfied and fully motivated by getting Christ. More than wealth and riches to have the one who died and rose again with us and for us forevermore. That is what we're doing in communion. We are saying, I come empty and I am filled and satisfied in him. And so I'm going to pray here in a moment, uh, and we're going to have ushers come forward. You can come down the middle aisle, receive the elements, and come back. Um, But I want you to consider that. Are you willing to actually say, I am fully dependent and needy, and I need to receive all things in the person and work of Jesus Christ? If so, would you do that worshipfully today? Let's pray. God, I am grateful Um, one, that you do not just call us to give and to be poor and to look foolish just just because. But God, you teach us that those things have to be rooted out if we are going to depend on you. God, would this room be filled with people to such belongs the kingdom of God? That we would be a dependent people, that we would give of ourselves, that we would give of that which we have, so that we could be fully reliant on you. Whatever it is, whatever area of life, whether it's money or our own good deeds or our own strength or our own brain or our own networks or our own whatever, whatever it is in our hearts, God, would you not only reveal that, but like a good physician, would you remove it? God, would your spirit right now take that out? And as we take communion, would this be a worshipful moment knowing that we did not have to do any good deed to get eternal life? We simply had to be open to you. We simply have to acknowledge our dependence on you. And as we receive the elements today, would that be a sign for our souls that we have all we need in Jesus Christ?
In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Ah. Uh...